Thanks for coming back, those of you who are here this morning. Those of you who weren't, thank you for being out tonight as we continue our study. Before I get into our study, let me just announce that there's going to be a day camp evaluation meeting, especially for counselors, although all day camp staff is welcome to attend. That's immediately after our uh, service tonight in Fellowship Hall. So in Fellowship Hall, evaluation meeting for counselors uh, uh, for day camp. I apologize for all the mixed signals I have been sending you as to what was going on tonight. So let me take a moment to explain. Um, I announced that we were going to look at Pharaoh's hardened heart. Uh, we've been in the book of Romans in the morning. We ended with a verse that said that God would have mercy upon whom he would have mercy, and he will harden those whom he will harden. So I wanted to look at that in uh, much greater detail, uh, because he speaks of hardening Pharaoh's heart. I wanted to examine the book of Exodus in detail, and I was going to do that on Sunday night, because it's going to require a handout. Uh, there are a lot of verses I want to look at. It's a uh, pretty technical kind of discussion. So I wanted to have material in front of people, thus I thought Sunday night. But the more I thought about it, the people that are, a lot of people that are <coughs> here in the morning are not here at night. And some of the people that are here at night are here for the revelation. And uh, that's something brand new to them. To make a long story short, I decided to bite the bullet. We're going to do it in the morning. I'm just going to use handouts in the morning. Uh, so next Sunday morning, we're going to come and we're going to get a handout. And we're going to look at God's hardening Pharaoh's heart and then proceed on uh, with the very next question that's in the book of Romans, which is, uh, why does God still find fault? Uh, so <coughs> that's now what the future looks like, Lord willing. Uh, so tonight we're back in the book of Revelation. So if you came tonight thinking that we were going to do hardening of Pharaoh's heart, I apologize. Uh, but we'll do that next Sunday morning, Lord willing. Okay, Revelation chapter 17. Judgment on the great prostitute. Uh, I've been doing this chapter by chapter, although chapter 18 is, is intricately connected to uh, chapter 17, so we uh, leave it in kind of uh, midstream, but uh, there's enough material here for us this evening. Introduction. This comes from uh, the Holman New Testament commentary. It reads, and I quote, This chapter marks the beginning of a new, shorter vision, chapter 17, 1 to 21, 8, then the one that ended in chapter 16. When the third vision is read as a whole, the theme is striking and obvious. Two women symbolize two cities. First is the lewd prostitute, Babylon, the great. Second is the pure bride, the new Jerusalem. The first is the finest product of human technology and achievement, one final terrible display of civilization apart from God. The second is the finest product of divine grace, the eternal flowering of God's people sandwiched between John's view of the two cities is the coming of the bridegroom and his wedding presented in just those terms in chapter 19, verses 6 to 10. I thought that was a pretty good summary. So the theme tonight is the judgment of the great prostitute. It's found in chapter 17, verse 1. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, 
I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters. That is the element, if you will, uh, the purpose of these last uh, judgments and this seventh bowl judgment. First, the reason for the judgment of the great prostitute. The prostitute is seen as influencing many nations. Revelation 17:1. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters. The many waters are interpreted by the text to refer to many people and nations. Verse 15, And the angel said to me, The waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes, nations and languages. So that's put out there for us. That's the divine interpretation. There is no reason to argue that. Uh, there is no reason for any other interpretation. That's what the scripture says it means. Therefore, that's what it means. And just a reminder, as we go through the book of Revelation, we want to constantly be looking at those uh, places where the scripture interprets the scripture for us. That becomes a real benchmark that becomes solid ground, that becomes cornerstone, whatever kind of language you want to use, that's where we can stake our flag and say dogmatically, this is truth, this is what it means. So whenever you have those uh, delineations, uh, circle them in your Bible, draw arrows, do something to draw your attention to the fact the Bible tells us what this means. And so we don't have to pour over all the other materials uh, and read people's opinions, etc. The Bible tells us what it means. Uh, B. The kings of the earth have committed fornication with her. Verses 1 and 2. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bulls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on the many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality. Number one, this is most likely to be taken metaphorically for the king's uh, seeking aid from Babylon as opposed to aid from God, thus spiritual immorality. Let me go a step further and say you have to take it metaphorically. Uh, for the passage is going to tell us later on that the great prostitute is a city. Uh, it says it's Babylon. Uh, therefore, you can't commit fornication with a city. Uh, so it has to be in a spiritual sense. It has to be talking about uh, religious prostitution, if you will. Number two, however, spiritual adultery often results in actual physical adultery as well. So there is a sense in which impure doctrine leads to impure life. And we often see in the Old Testament that there is spiritual immorality that then manifests itself in physical immorality. You have uh, the uh, prostitutes of, of the temple, for example, all kinds of things. As I, I didn't list verse after verse, but uh, as you think through the Old Testament, you can think of many, many references uh, where God is finding fault for a spiritual immorality that results in a physical immorality. Uh, C, the woman's power is derived from the beast, and she... He carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast. Uh, once again, repeated uh, in a different translation. D, the peoples 
of the earth have been drunk with the wine of that fornication, <clears throat> with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. Here is a summation from uh, Osborne's commentary, which is taken from the Baker Exegetical Commentary in the New Testament. I quote, The people of the earth have joined the rulers in their actual and religious adultery. In Jeremiah 51.7, Babylon is condemned for making the whole earth drunk so that they now have gone mad. Building on Jeremiah 25, 15 to 16, where God said, Take from my hand this cup, filled with the wine of my wrath, which equals Revelation 14, 10, and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. When they drink it, they will stagger and go mad. See, uh, cross-reference Isaiah 51, 17. It is common for commentators, example, Mouse, Sweet, Roloff, and Beale, to see this also as political and economic subversion for Rome seduced the nations with promises of luxury and power. This is brought out more clearly uh, in uh, chapter 18, 3, 7, 9, 11 to 16, 19, and 23, but is implicit here as well. I'll come to back to some of that in just a moment. Number two, the description of the great prostitute that is to be judged. The prostitute is not a literal woman, but rather a city. As I mentioned earlier, Revelation 17, 3, he carried me away in the spirit into wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and seven heads and ten horns. Uh, verse 18, here again, the definitive uh, interpretation, and the woman that you saw is the great city that is dominion over the kings of the earth. So again, we have the passage telling us that the many waters are peoples, nations, and the passage tells us that this prostitute is actually a city. B, the prostitute, or this city, is adorned in beautiful and costly attire. The woman is arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls. The symbolism here explains the attraction that the kings of the earth have to her, namely the wealth that she has accumulated and the luxuriousness of her lifestyle. So here is a very wealthy city, all right? It has the jewels, it has gold, it has the ability to adorn itself in a very luxurious manner. So that is what attracts the kings of the earth to this city, all right? They, they want to buy, they want to sell, they want to trade, they want to be involved in this city because of its riches. That's the attraction. C. However, though the prostitute appears to be desirable from her outward appearance, she is in fact filthy and her conduct is abominable. Verse 4. The woman is arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with golden jewels and pearls holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. There is a filth that is a result of her fornication. She is, in fact, diseased and passes the disease upon all who commit fornication with her. It's really very graphic picture here 
it's, it's really the picture of a sexually transmitted disease. And what it is showing is this, this spiritual fornication results in a spiritual disease that is attracted that brings about destruction. Uh, just as venereal de- diseases bring about death and all kinds of heartache and misery, so this spiritual immorality is going to bring about all kinds of misery and hardship. It's a very, very graphic picture of this filthiness that's being passed on from this city. It's corrupting influence, if you will. D, the prostitute is identified as Babylon, and on her forehead was written a name of mystery, which is Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abomination. In Revelation 16, 19, it says that the great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon the Great to make her drain the cup of the wine on the fury of her mat. We uh, then used another uh, translation that says the same thing. The word mystery is descriptive and not a part of the title. So Mystery Babylon, it shouldn't be understood as that's the title, Mystery Babylon. The, the title is Babylon the Great. But Babylon the Great has a mystery associated, if you will, all right? So understand that there's this great Babylon, this city, but there is a mystery to this city. So number two, Babylon is a mystery. The truth of Babylon is revealed only to the initiated. Um, The word for mystery here uh, is a, a word that speaks of what are sometimes referred to as mystery religions, all right? There are practices that are associated with certain groups that the only way you are supposed to know those practices uh, are by joining that group. For example, the Masons. The Masons have a lot of secret practices, a a secret handshake. They have uh, secret meetings that take place, rituals and practices, and those things have been published now, and uh, you can read about them, but they were intended to be secret. They were intended to be only understood and known by the initiates, only those people that participated. And that's the word that's used here for for a mystery. Uh, It is really understood by the participants, the initiated. Uh, She is seen as being responsible for numerous abominable practices spread throughout the world. Revelation 17.5, on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes, meaning that she gives birth to all these other cities that are going to follow suit. Uh, There's going to be this spread of incorruption that starts with with Babylon. Uh, It's talking about government. It's talking about a spread of a worldwide religion mixed with government officials that are going to be uh, evil. Five, 
Many understand Babylon as metaphorical and see the city as actually being Rome. All right, there's, I think, a lot uh, to be said for that particular interpretation. Um, <clears throat> the scriptures often use uh, metaphors to convey a certain thought. All right, for example, in the book of Isaiah, uh, God refers to Jerusalem as Sodom. Uh, He's speaking of Jerusalem, but he refers to them as Sodom because they are acting like Sodom. They are engaged in the practices of Sodom. And so there are a lot of people that think when it's talking about the mystery Babylon, it's talking about the way in which Babylon's influence in the Old Testament was great. And remember the children of Israel were led uh, captive to Babylon. Uh, We just had this past week with uh, day camp and the emphasis of Daniel being carried away into Babylon. So there are a lot of people that understand that what's really being spoken about here is the city of Rome, but Rome is pictured as Babylon in the sense of playing that that role that Babylon played in the Old Testament. If you understand the drift, I think there's a lot to be said for that. E. The abominations of the woman is explained as the persecution of the saints. Verse 6, and I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. So now here we're, we're told what the image of the drunkenness is, what the image of the wine is. Okay? What is this intoxicating brew that has been drunk? And the answer is, it is the blood of the saints. They have so... Uh, persecuted the people of God that they have become drunk on their blood, all right? It speaks to the abundance of the persecution, the numbers of deaths that are taking place. And that is what they are becoming drunk upon. That is their abomination. So number one, we discover that the abominations that were in the gold cup was nothing less than the blood of the martyred saints. So much blood has been shed that she has become drunk in consuming that blood. Verse 6, and I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints. So it's a picture here, okay? Picture. We're talking about a city. We're talking about a government. But think in this picture of opulence, think of this picture of luxury holding a golden cup that is filled with the blood of saints. And everyone is imbibing. Everyone is participating. Everybody is enjoying, almost partying this aspect of persecution. That the world has become so corrupted that everyone is rejoicing at the destruction that's coming upon the people of God. John is confounded by what he sees. Verse 6, And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. He marveled in the sense of not understanding all that he saw. Okay? What does this mean? He's almost like watching a video. 
And as he's seeing all this, he's, he's wondering, what, what does this mean? As most of us do when we read the book of Revelation, what does this mean? Uh, what are all these images? Uh, how are we to understand this? So, three, the description of the great prostitute that is to be judged explained. The angel interprets the vision. Revelation 17, 7. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman. So here the angel says, why do you wonder? I will explain it to you. So this is, this is good. B, the beast will come back to life that will cause the non-believers to be amazed. We'd already seen that earlier in the Revelation. It comes back. Revelation 17, 8. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. Uh, Another quote from Osborne's commentary. The parts of this interpretation in this chapter tend to be introduced by that you saw. All right. So that term, that you saw, is found in verses 8, 12, 15, 16, and 18. That's very helpful. That you saw, that you saw, that you saw, that you saw. Referring back to the vision of 17, 1 to 6. The one exception is verse 9, where the phrase is not used to introduce the interpretation of the seven hills. This is a parody of both God and Christ. In 1, 4, 8, chapter 4, verse 8, chapter 11, 17, and 16, 5. God is entitled, with some variation, the one who was, who is, and who is to come. So what he is saying here is there's a parody. Uh, You should note the similarity where Jesus is referred to the one who was and who is and who is to come. So this Antichrist, who is pictured here as the beast, is the one who was and is uh, and is not and is to come. Uh, It is a parallel with the Christ. Reading on in the middle of this paragraph. Now the beast once was and is not and is about to ascend from the abyss and go to destruction. It is clear from 13, 4, 5, 6b, 8, and 15 that the beast demands worship as the God of this world. All of this we've already seen. In the same way, the was and is not parodies Jesus' death and resurrection. In 118, Christ says, I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive for eternity. Also chapter 2, verse 8. The beast imitates this in chapter 13, 3, 12, and 14 with his mortal wound that is healed. And this, in one sense, alludes to that building on the Nero uh, Redivius legend The phrase was and is not 
also points forward to the eighth king of 1711. The Antichrist, who was with Satan, is not here right now, but will come at the end of history. In other words, the Antichrist will assume power and take upon himself divine attributes, but is the absolute opposite of divinity. Now, I don't know if you get all that, but the point is the Antichrist is trying to be like Christ, trying to represent himself as Christ. That's why people are worshiping him. They believe the Antichrist to be the Christ, but he's not. But he's not. But he will seduce many who... In fact, he will seduce all whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life. They will believe that he is the Christ when he is not. The seven heads explained. The seven heads are seven mountains, Revelation 17.9. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. This is a strong case for the city of Rome, for Rome sits on seven hills. And so this is, for by many, a description of the city of Rome. Uh, many see within this um, the Pope and all kinds of things. I don't know how far we want to get into all that kind of stuff. Uh, I think that goes a bit far to try to uh, dot every I and cross every T, but I think it's reasonable to see that this city that is being spoken about is Rome coming back to a place of prominence once again as it had in earlier years. The seven heads additionally are seven kings. Revelation 17.10. They are also seven kings. And I put that in bold because now we have a kind of unique phenomena, and that is, A, as an aside, this fact becomes very interesting and very important. That is, the seven crowns stand for two very different things at the same time. They represent both mountains and kings. It tells us that. Okay? So you've got one picture. This picture of the prostitute with seven crowns. What are those seven crowns? According to the text, they are seven mountains and they are seven kings. So they represent two things. That's significant. So we, we find out that as you're working through um, the book of Revelation, sometimes these images switch and they don't always represent exactly the same thing. So you've got to read carefully as to where you are and you just can't take an image out of chapter, let's say, 12 and equate it with chapter 4 unless the text does so. All right. So it's just one of the more confusing elements of the book of Revelation and uh, it's, it's just one of the things I, I point out to you. Anytime that interprets it for us, we want to take note. And uh, that's a unique fact. So these seven, uh, mountain, these, uh, seven uh, crowns represent seven mountains. They represent seven kings. D. Five of these kings are past 
at presumably the time of the writing of Revelation. There also are seven kings, five of whom have fallen. All right. Now, I say presumably at the time of the writing of Revelation, for that is the way most commentators take it. But that is a presupposition. All right. It could be five that have fallen at the time that the book of Revelation is written, or grammatically, you could take it, these are five that have fallen in the time frame of the book of Revelation is just described, and they have just fallen previous to chapter uh, 17. You follow my drift? All right, so they have fallen. Are they historical? Are, are these, these five kings, in essence, five Old Testament kings, are they leading up to Rome in the time of Jesus, or are these future kings uh, in the time of the time frame of the book of Revelation, most take it to be the kings leading up to the time of Christ. That also works pretty well with the book of Daniel and interpreting the 70 weeks, etc. <clears throat> e, one king is present, presumably at the time of the writing of Revelation. There are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is. And F, one king is future, presumably, to the time of writing the book of Revelation. And the other is not yet to come. I think it's pretty obvious that we can say, let me take it back. I mean, it is obvious. We can say with certainty that that future king is future to us, all right? So, so there's a king that's coming that's even future to us in this time of Revelation. The future king will reign but a brief period of time. Verse 10, he must remain only a little while. The beast becomes the eighth king but is so closely identified with the seventh king that he is numbered with him. Let me say that again. The beast becomes the eighth king, but is so closely identified with the seventh king that he is numbered with him. Look at verse 11. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seventh. All right, so, so we're talking about the Antichrist. And the Antichrist is separate from the seventh king, but they unite. And they work as one. They are co-regents, if you will. The ten horns are kings also. These ten kings are all kings yet in the future. Verse 12, and the ten horns that you saw are ten kings, who have not yet received royal power. These ten kings rule in conjunction with the beast, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. So they are going to reign for a period of time. These are ten kings. Uh, Back in the old days uh, when uh, a lot of commentaries were written, uh, they made uh, the ten kings... Uh, the uh, 
European Common Market because there were 10 uh, members of the European Common Market and they said, well, here's the beginning of Revelation. Here's the beginning of the, the Tribulation. We've seen these 10 kings come together. The European Common Market, well, it's obviously proven to be not that, but it is something like that, all right? These are kings. These are national leaders that are unifying, coming together uh, under one authority, okay? So what we're building toward is a worldwide government. That's what's being foreshadowed for us here. This is the process by which there's going to be a worldwide government at the end. Moving on. C, the ten kings form a perfect alliance. They are of one mind. The ten kings give complete allegiance to the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. So they are in conjunction with the Antichrist. They are recognizing their power. <clears throat> I uh, am presently reading a book that is talking about the influence of Calvinism in uh, the New England uh, Puritan era. And uh, what it begins to do is trace uh, the Puritans in England, and it is tracing the influence in England of the, of the difficulties that existed uh, during different kings as to whether they were united with Protestantism or Catholicism. And uh, the whole concept of the separation of church and state came out of the abysmal practices that were associated in England when they were under governmental rule and also theocratic or religious rule at the same time. All right? When... <clears throat> Catholicism, and namely the Pope, had tremendous powers over the church. And if you remember, Henry VIII um, wanted to have another wife, and the church said, you can't. And so he broke with Catholicism as king uh, because they would not allow him to uh, have another wife as his wife killed, etc. So anyway, it's back to that, okay? It's back to where the church and the uh, political system are united. But unfortunately, under a false Christ, not the real Christ. E, thus the beast receives full governmental support throughout the world. It should not be lost that this is a precursor to the fact that Jesus will return and rule over all the earth. You see, there is this antichrist that's seeking to be like Christ and to, to supplant the work of Christ. In Isaiah chapter 14, 
you have a depiction of the evil one, of Satan. And Satan says, I am going to be like God. I'm going to be the most high. That is Satan's ambition. Satan's ambition is to overthrow God and be worshipped and served in the place of God, even as the temptation for Jesus when Satan took him up on the mount and said, I will give you all these kingdoms, I will give you all these cities, if you will but just bow and worship me. That's what he wants. And as we move to the end of this time, the evil one is actually going to try to rule over all of this earth, even as Jesus will rule over all this earth. Okay, moving on. The judgment of the great prostitute explained. These ten kings will make war with Christ. They'll make war on the Lamb. The Lamb will master these ten kings. They'll make war on the Lamb and the Lamb will conquer them. The Lamb will master them because he is sovereign. For he is Lord of lords and King of kings. That's what is going to be demonstrated in the most powerful way. For all the kings of the earth, and this is described also in Psalm 2, that the nations will bind together. They will seek to overthrow the rule of God. And it says that he is in heaven will laugh. All right? What can they do against the sovereign God? But he is going to show himself. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. Get the whole earth to try to rebel against them, and it's not going to fly. D. The Lamb will master the kings because, uh, excuse me, C. The Lamb will master them because he is sovereign, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings. The Lamb will master the kings because God's people are faithful, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. Now here, uh, I, I should have worded this a little differently. I didn't word it carefully enough. The Lamb will master the kings not because God's people are faithful. He will master them because he is sovereign. He is king of kings and lord of lords. But in mastering the kings, he will also maintain the faithfulness of his people. By God's grace, the believers are going to remain faithful and committed to Christ. They're not going to be taken in by all of this. And again, Revelation 17, 15, the angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the angel is, uh, the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. Now here is the interesting thing. E, the king's will turn on the great prostitute. Verse 16, and the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. So what's going to happen is that this confederation is going to fall apart. This happy agreement among the ten kings and this world order where everything seems to be going hunky-dory is going to crumble because of the work 
of the Lamb. They will not be faithful to the prostitute the way that the Lamb's people are faithful to him. For notice, in turning upon the prostitute, they will totally devastate her. Remember, the prostitute's a city, probably Rome. They, that is these kings, will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. All right? They aren't going to remain faithful. But God's people remain faithful to him. It is a mere image of false religion and true religion. All right? And the Antichrist is pushing this false religion and people seeking to be faithful to him and he's going to provide them luxury and he's going to provide them wealth and he's going to provide them security and for a period of time everything's looking great and it looks like there's going to be peace worldwide and there looks like all this wonderful stuff is going to happen and then Christ rises up and it all starts to crumble and it's shown for the wickedness and sinfulness that it is. All of this will be accomplished because the Lord is sovereign and the Lord's will will be done. Notice verse 17. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose. If you remember in the book of Romans last week, I talked about how all things work together for good because God has a purpose. And we look particularly at the purpose in election. And I said that God had a purpose both for Jacob and for Esau. And I went through and emphasized where purpose is found time and time again in Romans chapter 8 and 9. If you just read the New Testament, I was reading yesterday and I was, I was just reading through the epistles and as I was reading through the epistles yesterday the word purpose just, just started jumping off the page because I'd been thinking about that and it's there time and time and time again God has a purpose God has a reason for all these things and God's purpose is being achieved uh, none of this is by accident. None of this is Christ being overthrown. None of this is any kind of a battle that's going on where there is a, a winning and a losing, where there is a rising and an ebbing. Um, there's a famous Christian song that was written a, a few years ago called, called The Champion. And uh, that gives the impression that there's this great cosmic struggle going on and wonderfully, in the end, God wins the struggle. There is no cosmic struggle going on. It isn't that God just barely wins out. <laughs> that, you know, he pulls it out in the fourth quarter, you know, throws up a Hail Mary, uh, you know, in football and gets the final touchdown, okay? It's not that at all. 
God has a purpose that is being worked out. He's predicting it. He's demonstrating it. He's showing it. And it's going to have its fulfillment because he's the king of kings and he's the Lord of lords. All things are under his control and nothing is happening that he doesn't permit, he doesn't allow to take place. So that's one reason why I decided I need to go back and look at Exodus and the the hardening of Pharaoh's heart for it is God's purpose that is being fulfilled. Um, We can have confidence in all of what takes place. And one of the purposes is to reveal the glory of God's kingdom. We don't understand the beauty of that kingdom until we see this other kingdom that doesn't match what God's kingdom is like. Uh, I wish many of you, and I've used this illustration before, know the words to uh, the Beatles song, Imagine. Imagine there's no country, there's no religion to. Uh, come and join us, you know. Uh, this will be a utopia. This will be wonderful. This will be great. That's what our world thinks. If, if we could just have this, if we could just have a, a worldwide government, if we could just have peace on earth, if there just could be prosperity, if there could be wealth. And these Christians are standing in the way of all that. So let's get rid of them and go for this utopia of where everyone can do what they want, have all kinds of sexual immorality, have all kinds of of licentiousness, debauchery, you name it, and we'll just have a a really wonderful time. And it's going to be revealed that that's that's horrific. That's devastating. (laughs) That's filled with sexual disease and corruption and misery and heartache. But the true kingdom... When Christ comes and reigns, is going to be what people really have hoped for, the true peace, the true joy, which is righteousness, not unrighteousness. True freedom, which comes in allegiance to Christ, not in rebelling against him. All right, so there is this demonstration of this awful kingdom, and we look forward to the glorious kingdom that we are going to be able to share a part of. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for your coming kingdom. We thank you that Jesus is the true Christ, the one who was and is and is forevermore, who is coming to reign. And we look forward to your coming. And uh, Lord, give us confidence in all that you do and all that you say. Your word is true. And we know that it will come to pass. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Excuse me. Amen. Thank you. And you are dismissed.